If you've been following the news, you would have seen this week that um, Parliament has been hearing oral submissions around the issue of assisted dying or euthanasia. Uh, This week, they heard over 100 oral submissions uh, in Parliament. There's been a number of uh, people sign a petition to think through this issue uh, for us as a country about assisted dying or euthanasia. Now, the British House of Lords Committee on Medical Ethics, they define euthanasia as this, and it's on the screen. It's a deliberate intervention undertaken with the express intention of ending a life to relieve intractable suffering. I'll read it again. A deliberate intervention undertaken with the express intention of ending life to relieve intractable suffering. No one wants to suffer. We hate the idea of suffering, and rightly so. We were not made to suffer. We were made for joy, for happiness, for life. But the reality is that every person on the planet and every person in this room, our life will come to an end. The sole attraction to euthanasia seems to be to relieve incredible suffering, to shorten the pain for people who are at the end of their life and make it more bearable. But as we think through life, then what? There's one assumption that this whole idea has that really is unproven. What comes next after death? See, the assumption behind euthanasia is that what comes next is in some way better than the pain and suffering of the present. The question I want to ask is, do we know that? Do we actually know what comes next is better than the pain and suffering of of the worst suffering people are going through? It's an awfully big assumption, isn't it? It's a pretty big assumption to base your life on. Now, a Christian ethic on euthanasia needs to address more than just what happens next. Jesus has lots to say about who gives life and who should take life. But the point I want us to see tonight is that knowing what happens after death has significant consequences for how we act now, personally, as a society, as a nation. Life, then what? It matters. That's a question, as Ming said, we've been asking on campus all week. And what we saw from those stats, if you kind of saw them as they, as they flashed up there, that 62% of people we surveyed believe that death is not the end. 62% of people that we spoke to said there is something more that comes after death. What is that? It's important to know, isn't it? And are, are there any indicators this side of death's door that will show us what will happen next? Well, Christianity has something to say on life and death. And it's worth looking into that Christianity has at its heart a conviction based on historical events that the man Jesus is God the Son. It has this conviction that Jesus is unlike any other person that's gone before him in that he made us. No one else on the face of the planet made everything except for this man Jesus, we would claim. And that knowledge of him, that idea that he is God, doesn't just come from some fanciful idea that we've made up. It comes from really looking at the events of history, about what Jesus has done and the things that he said and them happening and fitting within a context throughout all of history. In fact, as you read through the Bible, you see it's a collection of writings over a 1,500-year period that all focus on this person of Jesus. And the claim of the Bible, the claim of Christianity is this, death is not the end. Death is not the end. And life after death is only found in him. It's only found in Jesus. Well, in this part of the Bible uh, that Ben just read for us, we hear the story Jesus tells about two men. Luke 16. These men live very different lives and they have very different futures. Now tonight, you might have come along here not believing in Jesus. You're checking out what this uni church crowd is about. Uh, You might not be convinced that there is a heaven and hell. But I want to put it to you tonight that it is worth investigating. Because if the claims of Jesus have as much veracity as history claims they do, if what the Bible says about Jesus and what he said and did is true, if that's actually true, it has dramatic implications for the future of you and me irrespective of what we believe about it. If it's actually true, it will matter for us. Life, then what? After tonight's talk, we're going to have some time uh, in in the kind of service here together where we can answer questions. I'm happy for you to throw whatever questions you've got at this passage. See, because we here at UniChurch have this conviction that Christianity doesn't require we check our brains at the door. 
You come to church, it doesn't mean we throw out what we think and we've just got to you know, just believe with our eyes shut and imagine we're in a Titanic movie or something. That's not the idea of Christianity. Christianity pushes us to look at history around the events of Jesus. So we'd love for you to ask questions. You can do it by texting into the number on, on the screen uh, that's up there now. Text that number all throughout uh, the service, the sermon. And at the end of this sermon, uh, I will come back and we'll answer questions. Please put Jesus under the microscope. It's really worth it. Well, come with me and we'll have a look at this passage of what God has to say to us from Luke 16 and hear about what happens after life. First thing we see is two very different men. Verse 19 of chapter 16. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Here Jesus tells us a parable, a story, about two rich men whose only real similarity is the suburb they live in. The rich man is filthy rich. Like if you want a picture of a rich dude, this is one rich dude. Now he's, he's wearing purple. Now, why is that important? We, we wear purple all the time. Well, some of us do. Um, some of us, maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. I'm not into that sort of thing. But uh, purple isn't much to us. But in this culture and time, the only way you could make purple was to harvest a certain type of sea snail. You go and find them and you need hundreds of thousands of sea snails to extract this purple dye to dye your clothes purple. These are expensive clothes. Did a bit of research uh, throughout the week. Wikipedia told me, so it must be true. Uh, Wikipedia told me that the most expensive suit on sale, to kind of off, off the rack, is $100,000. Like, this guy is walking around in suits like that, if not more. His, his wardrobe makes the queen look like she shops at the warehouse, right? That's what he is like. And then Jesus tells us in this story that he had uh, purple clothes and fine linen, now, you've got to understand what fine linen is. It's your underwear. He's like, even his underwear is fancy. The stuff that's underneath, this guy, he's got it all in terms of his clothing. He's got the best stuff. I don't know, Hugo Boss or better. I don't know what it is, but there you go. He's wearing it. And this man is just full of all things that are good. Fine fashion, food and fitness. He's the model of what secure living looks like. He's the model of success. You're like, man, that guy has got it made. But at his gate, as the camera pans back, at the entrance to his Eden, where everything is so nice, lay a man that is nothing like the rich man. Lazarus is his name. He was poor. He had no money. He was sick. He was hungry. He, he longed to eat even the crumbs from the rich man's table. He, he, does, he, was so, he just wanted to eat this food. But the only lick of comfort that he would receive was that of the town dogs licking the pus from his sores as he sat there, probably maimed, not being able to move from this rich man's gate, hoping one day that the rich man might give him some food from the table. It's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? The pus being licked by a dog, that's his existence. It's hard to imagine an existence much worse than that. But in a split second, both these two men who look so different to start with become equal as death reaches them both. See, death is the great equalizer. The rich and the poor alike all experience death. And for a split second, equality came to both men. It's a great reminder for us here. 100% of people die. I can guarantee you. 100% of people die. I don't know if this is news, but you and I, we're going to die. Death is a reality that we all have to deal with. And it comes to all, irrespective of the food we eat, uh, irrespective of the clothes we wear, the company we keep, how much fun we've had in life, what degrees we have, the number of zeros in our bank balance. Death cares squat for all that stuff. Death is my future and yours. But what Jesus tells us here in this passage is, death is not the end. Death is not the end. Look at verse 22. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. 
What does this story, this parable tell us? Death is not the end. What we see here is a complete reversal of these two men. The rich man is in, is in torment and Lazarus is at Abraham's side. Now that word there, side, it, it is literally, he is at Abraham's bosom. It's not a word we use that often, but that's what it's saying. He is at Abraham's bosom. It's, it's a picture of like a nursing mother caring for her, her child. Here this Lazarus, this man who had nothing, is being cared for by the father of Israel, the great one of God's people. He is there with him. The one who was ignored and rejected is now cared for by the greatest father known to all of Israel. That's worth pausing for a second and noting something. If death was not, sorry, if death was the end, if we leave, then we die, then we turn into worm food, that's it. Then it means that life is just about, well, living. There's no real morals. We can, we can do whatever we want. This story would just be, if there is no God and, and he's, he hasn't spoken to us in his word, we just say, oh, well, that sucks. That sucked for the, for the, for the poor guy who sat at the gate. And that was great for the rich dude. Like, good on you. We, we've, we've got no way of saying, you know what? That rich guy, you should have actually cared for the guy that was at your gate. Why should he? If life's just about here and now, you live, you eat, you, you die, then live it up. Like, why, why would you care for others? Well, often the answer we get to that is, well, you care for others because it actually helps you feel good about yourself. Which is just saying, oh, the reason I care for him is so that I feel great. It's all about me getting as much as I can. But if there is life after death, if there are consequences for the way that we live, and there is a God who has made the world with right and wrong, then it matters how we live. It matters how we care for others. There's a real reason other than just what we kind of collectively come up with. God has spoken, is what Jesus is saying. Death is not the end. There is a right and a wrong in our world. God has stitched into the fabric of creation a moral order. And his law, his word, it actually required that the rich look after the poor. You know how you think, man, why weren't you helping that guy? There's that kind of little part within you that if, I mean, I won't ask you to put your hands up. But how many of us here, if we were thinking about ourselves being that rich dude, we've got it all. How many of us go, we should just leave that poor beggar at the gate, stuff him. Don't put your hands up. (laughs) My hunch is not many of us think that way. We think there's something kind of stitched into us where we should care for this guy. And that's exactly because God's made us. He's made you no matter what you think of him. And he's stitched his law, his, his morals kind of into the fabric of creation. Have a look with me at Leviticus 25. There's lots of places that the Bible points to this. But Leviticus tells us part of what God's law was like and how we should care for others. Have a look at this. Leviticus 25, 35, if you want to follow it up later. God says this, If your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Don't profit or take interest from him, but fear your God... And let your brother live among you. What's he saying? Let God be the one who helps you work out how to live in the world. Fear God, treat God rightly and care for this person that is amongst us. This person who is in need. That's exactly what this rich guy should have done on earth. Welcome Lazarus into his home. Comforted him, fed him. Doesn't mean they've got to be best mates. But he had so much excess. And this guy had nothing and they were in such close proximity at his very gate. When you ignore the word of God, you always ignore people. When you ignore the word of God, you always ignore people. The rich man, he, he didn't tremble at God's word. Probably would have called himself a Jew, a follower of the true and living God. But he just didn't do what God's word said he should have. What does that tell us? It tells us that not doing what God says or sins of omission are just as bad as doing what God says we can't do, or sins of commission. Right? You get that? Um, not doing what God says we should do is just as bad as doing things that he says we can't. But now, what the rich man should have done, after death's door, Abraham did. He is welcomed home to Abraham's side, to his bosom. <laughs> but for the rich man, it didn't turn out so well. And here's where we see the agony of hell. The agony of hell. Look at verse 24. 
Father Abraham, the rich man called out, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in his flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither from those from there cross over to us. Hell is a real place. The word used here is Hades, which is probably um, hell's waiting room. The place where those who are condemned, who who haven't trusted in Jesus, who who are not right with God, the place they go before hell is ready, before it's fully cooked and baked, uh, when Jesus comes back. It's the place that people go waiting for the final judgment. It's described here as as uh, torment and agony. It's not a good place. I, I don't stand here today going, oh, I'm trying to fester up some horrible idea to scare people. We see here that Jesus is explaining the reality of what comes next. And this is where this man ends up. Jesus, uh, in his other teaching throughout the Bible, um, likened hell to a place called Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was um, the place just outside of Jerusalem where the Israelites had burned their children in sacrifice to the Ammonite god, Moloch. It's a place of stench, a place of of wrong. It was a place that they, they viewed as defilement and heart-wrenching grief. Can you imagine that? Sacrificing your own child to serve a different God. By the first century, it had become a rubbish dump where offal was burned day and night. Bits and pieces. It's just the, the trash heap, but with all the sorts of horribleness that you'd expect of a world and a city and a place festering with wrongness and evil. It was all that was hideous and foul. Jesus likened hell to that. Not only was it agonizing, but it does not end. Jesus says there is a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell. No one crosses over. Unlike this life where our eternal destiny is changeable, on the other side of death's door, your eternal destiny is fixed forever. Hell is is horrible. But I want to be clear with you tonight. I actually don't think the biblical imagery around hell is literal. Some of you might be like, Phew, okay. Uh, I think Jesus here is, is using a story to illustrate a reality. He's using a metaphor of fire and flames and, and torment. Uh, one side note, we must be careful when we read the Bible um, to recognize that it's made up of many different genres, different literary styles. We've got to try and understand the type of literature it's actually claiming to be. And here, Jesus is using a metaphor, a story. Now, how do we know that it's a story? How do we know it's a metaphor? Well, because it tells us itself. You can work it out as you kind of look through it. If if this story that he's using is literal with Abraham and with this kind of rich man and and the chasm and and hell being like a fire and torment, if if it... corresponds exactly with reality, then I reckon heaven's going to be a pretty awkward place. Because if there's supposed to be people from every tribe and tongue and language in in, in heaven, and the picture of heaven that's painted here is being in Abraham's bosom, it's going to be pretty crowded, right? You're like, not that many people can fit around him, maybe 20 at max. Like, oh, get me, get me close to this Jesus, this this, um, Abraham dude, right? You kind of get a picture that he's painting something for us to help us get an idea of what is going on here. Jesus is using uh, imagery and metaphor to explain a reality. Does hell exist? I want to say absolutely hell exists. Is it burning with fire and full of torture? Probably not. I think it's far, far worse. Far worse than that. See, with all metaphors and signs and symbols, they all work with something that's known to point out something unknown. They take something that we we know and point to a greater reality. So just imagine for a moment, uh, you're walking down the street, and this wouldn't happen in New Zealand, but anyway, walking down the street, and you saw a sign, and the sign said, Danger! Beware of bears. B-E-A-R-S. Not beers, you've got to look out for them as well. Um, But bears, right? 
Now, at that moment, if you're walking down the street and you see this sign, danger, beware of bears, do you like go, ah, there's the letters, B-E-A-R. I'm freaked out by the B-E-A-R in front of me. Get away from me. Like They're going to jump off the sign and eat me. Of course we don't. See, those letters, those symbols, B-E-A-R, point us to an even scarier reality. Imagine if there was a brown bear on the loose. It's big, ugly, furry face, romping down the street, kind of chasing after you. That's a very different reality. What that sign does is use a symbol that we can understand to be aware of the reality that is to come. What Jesus is using here is a story, symbols of things that we understand to try and get a grasp of the reality that is to come. But the reality is always far greater than the thing, the sign, the symbol, the story that it points to. So great is the fear of this place that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Literally, get a spoon and rather than enter into eternal life maimed. That's a pretty big warning, isn't it? Do you take hell seriously? Do you have an even possibility that this might be true? Or because it sounds so weird or so, so harsh or so other, you're like, I don't really like that idea, so I'm just going to blot it out from my brain, you know, like exams. But that doesn't work, does it? Because <laughs> the reality is we have exams. How crazy it would be to think that there is no hell and then one day find out we're in it. Hell is real and it's far worse than we could ever imagine. It's not a place that anyone wants to go, especially when it's avoidable. Especially when it's avoidable. Now, on the first reading through this passage, I don't know if you, like me, found it a little bit odd because verse 25 seems to be saying that the only way we can avoid going to hell is to be poor, right? You read through and, and it says, basically, the rich go to hell because they're, they're rich and the poor go to heaven because they're poor. And you kind of see, is that what's going on here? I've just got to be poor to get there? Well, no, because the problem with that reading is that Lazarus is pictured here in this story next to one of the richest men in the Bible, Abraham. He's the man that had all blessings, that, that through him every nation on earth will be blessed. This is the blessed guy, the guy with all the bling. He makes this rich dude look like he shops at the warehouse. Uh-huh. So here, that's, that's, that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is the problem with all wealth. It masks that we have needs. So the problem with the rich is we're under the illusion that we need no help. I'm right, I can get through, I can pay my way out of that. I don't need help from anyone else. I don't, I don't need a God. Why would I need a God? Like, oh, my life's great, thanks. I'm loving it. I've got clothes, I've got you know, family, I've got relationships. Why would I need God? I've got everything that, that I have. And so we don't listen to the word of God. We don't take him seriously. We don't listen to what Jesus has to say to us because, well, we're right on our own. And we'd never place him in the position of calling the shots in our life. Why would we? My life's great. It's exactly the issue with this rich man. He's placed his security in his wealth. He thinks, I don't need God. I don't need to do what God's word says and care for this punk at my gate. I'm right. Life is great. Lazarus, on the other man, on the other hand, his very name means he who God helps. That's what Lazarus means. There's nothing intrinsically better about Lazarus, right? He merely recognized that he needed help. He had nothing else to do. He had no other place to get it for himself. He had no wealth. And so it was easy for him to say, I need help. And he accepted the help of God. He trusted him. This man's name means he who God helps. What was the rich man's name? Can anyone tell me? We don't know. You know, throughout the parables that Jesus tells, this is the only one where he names an actual person in the parable. All the rest are about a man or a manager or this person or that person or a rich person. And then suddenly, Lazarus. Why is that? I think he's pointing out to us that this rich man compared to Lazarus is very different. Lazarus' name means he who God helps. His identity, who he is, is the one whom God helps. What is the rich man's identity based on? Well, wealth and food and fancy living and fine clothes. And then at death, he is stripped of everything that pulls his identity together. 
Death strips him of everything so he doesn't even have a name. Who is this guy? (laughs) Well, it's all gone now. It's all gone. But on the other side of death's door, he hasn't changed. The rich man is still demanding others serve him. Did you hear it as we read it through the passage? Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and to cool off my tongue. Who does he think he is? Send Lazarus to do it for me. Or or the next bit, send people to my father's house and warn them about this place of torment. This guy still thinks his wealth and his identity allow him to call the shots. As you kind of read what's going on, I reckon there's a sense here of injustice. This rich man is like, this is wrong. This is unfair. How come I'm in this position right now? I didn't get enough warning. Do the decent thing, you know? Send them back to my five brothers so that they'll get warning unlike me. I'll be the martyr. You know, I'll go to hell, whatever. But you, you know, if if you'd given me the right amount of warning or the proper signs, then maybe, you know, I wouldn't have been where I'm at now. You can kind of see he's still turned against God at this point. But it does raise the question for all of us. Is hell really fair? Is hell fair? Sometimes it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever stood back and gone, why is this so strong for what seems to be so little offense? Why does it come out so strongly? If you haven't felt that, then as a Christian, you've probably never been to the funeral of someone who doesn't trust Jesus. Because it's at that place that you realize that if this is real, if what Jesus says is real and someone didn't trust him, man, why God? Why, why is it so strong? Why this person that I love? I think the reason that we struggle to understand the severity of hell and why it's okay is because we struggle to understand as a society justice. I don't think we do very well at justice. Punishment across our society has become more and more distasteful. We don't like the idea that someone would be punished. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a show called The Super Nanny. Who here has seen that show? All right. Who ever had their parents send them to the naughty corner? Oh, a show of hands. Right. They're probably watching Super Nanny. Right, because Super Nanny came in to all these families that were like, oh, you know, we, we can't push our views on our kids. We can't actually hold them to the punishments we say. We say, look, if you do this, I'm going to send you to your room for an hour. And then they do it, and you're like, all right, you've got one more chance. Super Nanny came along and said, you've got to do what you say, otherwise the kid will never learn. You've actually got to punish this child. That's an important thing to do. As a society, I think we experience the fruit of the values that we operate with. Our society has abandoned the ultimate truth. We don't ultimately think that there is right or wrong. It's all kind of relative. It's what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. Let let me do an experiment. See if you can finish this sentence. You ready? And you all say it together. Um, You can do whatever you want in life, as long as you don't... Oh, you guys have got it. Who told you that? What makes us operate on that value? And if we have that value, that means we'll never punish anyone. Our kids are just... Because punishment inflicts hurt. There's a, there's, a, there's a reality that if you punish someone, it hurts them. Otherwise, it has no effect. Were you like me and you got sent to your room as a kid? And mum would be like, go to your room. I'm like, okay, I've got all my toys there. Woo! <laughs> this is great. Like, don't, I don't know if you all like that. And mum would just get more angry at me. Uh, but you don't send someone to somewhere that doesn't hurt them or have some sort of negative effect on them. I think that's where the kind of British went wrong when they sent uh, their original kind of um, really bad people to Australia, right? People do bad stuff like, right, that's it. We're going to send you to this land called Australia. And they get there and they're like, this is awesome. Like, they have sun and beaches. Like, UK doesn't have any of that stuff, right? See, if if we're actually going to help people be punished to work out what they've done is wrong, then it needs to hurt, Our society doesn't like to hurt people. Hell is God acting justly to punish for what we've done. And it's right, isn't it, that justice should be enacted. It's right that when people do horrendous horrors, 
when they do all sorts of wrongs that they get punished for it. You hear of things that happen across the globe, what happen in our country, to our friends, to our neighbors. We hear of all sorts of atrocities that go on. I don't know if you're like me, but it makes me so angry. It makes me angry when someone rips off an old granny of all her money. It makes me angry when people are violent to others when they shouldn't be and they, they hurt them for no reason. I'm like, that is so wrong. You should get justice. And it brings up inside of me, I don't know if it's similar for you, this desire to enact justice. Have you ever felt that? I'll show them. You ever felt that way? Someone's going to. And I want to show them right here and right now. We have stitched into us this idea that justice must be delivered. The thing is, when it comes to us, we don't want that to go through. There's a rightness to justice and punishment. The whole world view of no pain, it's just not livable. Hurt and justice go hand in hand to stop wrongdoing. There's no other way of doing that. We need to get past our feelings on these issues. We need to see that what drives them actually is the nature of right and wrong. What is right and what is wrong? We need justice for our own good. There's a Christian author by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's um, Czechoslovakian. He lived through and was involved in the Balkan Wars. Now, the Balkan Wars are a pretty horrendous war. All sorts of atrocities occurred. Uh, and he says this, the practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Let me say it again. The practice of non-violence, living peacefully in the world, requires a belief in divine vengeance. The only way we can resist taking matters into our own hands, he's saying, is to believe there is a God who will deal with the matters himself. Because otherwise, we want to take it on ourselves. He says in his book um, these words, Imagine that you are delivering a lecture in the middle of a war zone. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered. They've been burned and leveled to the ground, all their possessions gone. People whose daughters and sisters have been raped whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Imagine you were giving a lecture to a group of people who have just experienced that. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis of your lecture, we should not retaliate since God is perfect love. We should not retaliate since God is perfect love. That's what you hear, isn't it? People say, if God is love, why is there such a thing as hell? If there was a loving God, surely there wouldn't be hell. He says this. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Soon you'll discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind what he's saying is it's only the foolish comfortable middle-class westerner that can live with the idea that living in non-violence with one another is helped if we believe that god never judges it isn't how do people get punished how do rights get wrong how do we make sure we maintain the world the way it needs to be either we need to stop the violence of humanity ourselves or we need to trust a far greater and just God to punish justly. There is a God who will judge. He will judge every right and wrong. That means we can let it go. We don't have to see justice happen here and now. If others don't enact justice, God will. That's the basis of the way that we are able to forgive because God will be just. It's that truth that nourishes my ability to let it go when the horrific happens. Justice will be delivered. I don't need to take it into my hands. He says, if you think that, well, we should just live peaceful lives, he's like, you haven't lived in the real world. You haven't seen what humanity are capable of. That view dies when you're in the Balkan Wars. It's only possible for us to live that in a society that we live in today. Without a just God, it falls back on us to enact justice. The next question that comes then, if we're thinking through the fairness of this, is, well, an eternal punishment? 
Do you sit there and go, why is this so long? Why is this so big? It seems kind of outrageously out of proportion. The time doesn't fit the crime. But we need to appreciate a couple of things. Number one, we miss how broken and corrupted we are as people. We miss that we have rejected the true and living God, even if we haven't done it violently, even if we're trying to do good things. Imagine for a moment that you're um, a sailor. Uh, You're a sailor and you're the best sailor on the seven seas. Right? You know how to scrub the decks well. You know how to kind of navigate brilliantly. You're so good with all the people on the ship. You, you, all the people that are there with you, 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 you're generous with them. You look like a brilliant sailor. But then as the camera pans back with you on deck, standing there going, look at me, all chipper and happy, right? Camera pans back, we see that you're sailing a pirate ship. Now at that moment, every good thing that you're doing is in rebellion against the authority that exists. You're saying, I'm flying my own flag. I'm living my own way. I'm going to put myself at the center of my universe and I don't care what the authority that exists thinks about me. All those good deeds that seem to be so good when you're up close are actually in rebellion against the authority that is there. If we are living, ignoring our God, if we are living saying, look, no offense, but I I just want to do things my way. I don't know if you're there. If there is a God and he made you and sustained you, that is incredibly offensive. That's incredibly offensive. It's showing that every part of us, even though we might not mean it, is actually in rebellion against him. We are flying a flag that says, up yours to God. That's what we're doing. How does a just and right God react to that? If God is the God who gives us life and gives us every breath that we have, and we go, I don't want you in my life, he has every right to say, okay, I'll take life itself away. All the good things that you have, everything I've provided you, breath, goodness, all gone. You don't want me? Okay. The eternal nature of hell helps us to recognize how broken and corrupted we are as people and how offensive it is to reject the true and living God. It also helps us to recognize who God is. Part of the tall poppy culture that we have loves to cut down those taller than us. And we look at everyone as someone just like me, but God isn't like us. So I want you to imagine for a moment, um, you're walking along the street, okay? And you kind of see an ant. And because you're kind of a bit angry that day, you tread on it. And you're like, yeah, I trod on an ant. Now, what punishment should come to me because of that? Some people want to say, oh, lots, because you're a good ant. But most of us just go, well, it was an ant. You know, say then you're walking along and you see a cat and you're like, that's it. I'm going to kick the cat. Now, I don't really like cats. They taste too much like chicken, but (laughs) sorry, I'm here awake. No, but say you kick the cat. Now, suddenly there's a little bit more cruelty there because a cat is kind of like different than an an ant. And say you're really having an angry day, then you go home. And uh, you, you go home and your brother's at home and you get frustrated at your brother and you're like, I'm so frustrated at you and you punch him in the face. Right? That's, that's serious now. That's a person that you've done that to. There's kind of some, some consequences. Your mum walks into the room and she's like, what have you done? And then you punch her in the face. Now, why is that worse? Well, this is our mum. This is the one who kind of had us and nurtured us from a small child. And this is the one who cares for us. Why? There's a relationship there, but there's also an authority of the family that you've taken out that's more than your brother, that's more than the cat, that's more than the aunt. Imagine then your mum calls the police. You're crazy. The police come around. What do you do? Punch the policeman in the face. Suddenly it just got tricky, didn't it? Because now there's real time. Because if you assault a police officer, you're insulting the, the kind of law enforcement of the country. They represent law and order. And what you were saying by punching that policeman in the face is, I don't care about law and order. I don't care about being a citizen here. And the law and order of the country says, go to jail. Do you see how now it's gotten bigger because of the authority of the person that's there? Let's say you're in jail, on the way to jail. You meet, say, the prime minister. And you see him and you're like, you're still angry. So you just punch him in the face. What's going to happen now? I mean, they're going to make an example out of you. It's going to be even more time. You punch the prime minister. But why is that more important? Why is, that, why is the crime, why is the time bigger for punching the Prime Minister? Because he represents the whole nation. He represents New Zealand. And we've affronted New Zealand. Now, let's say you get, you get extradited from New Zealand and they take you to the US. You land in the US and you see Trump and you know what you want to do, right? <laughs> let's say you run. 
You go through the black guy in the suits, right, with the guns, and you get there and you fly through the air and bang, connect with Trump, right? You get him on his nose. What do you think is going to happen to you next? You know, this man is the head of a very, very powerful country. They have nuclear bombs. They can blow you up. I wouldn't be surprised if you live more than three or four seconds past that point. Because you are taking out this person who represents a nation at this point, and quite a powerful nation. And there's a sense in which they would say, look, you mess with our leader, you mess with us, and we will give you the full force of our wrath and fury if you mess with our leader. Imagine what it's like to rock up to the God of the universe and say, oh, no offense, but I think, I think I'm the boss. I think I should be in your seat. I want to run life my own way. We miss who we are offending. And when you offend the one who created all things and is in authority over all things, we think we should just spend a few minutes in prison. This is no ant we're treading on. This is the creator of the universe who has offered us life and we, all of us in this room, have rejected him. Hell is the right and just and fair punishment for everyone who's said to God, I don't want you. I think I'm in control of my life. And it raises one more question for us. Okay, say that is true. But how can I know? How can I know that it's actually true? I wish you could be clearer with this. Because, you know, how, how can we really know these things? You might say them, you've read them from the Bible here, but what, what makes that be enough? The rich man in this story, he's in exactly that case, right? He, he, he's like, I, I want more information. He begs to send someone back from the dead to his brothers. Well, listen to the way Jesus answers him in verse 29, though. <laughs> and, and listen to his arrogance still as we go through. You ready? Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Your family should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The reason why he didn't turn to God and trust him was because no one had come back from the dead. He'd seen nothing big enough to go, yes, this God is real and you need to trust him. He's far better than all your wealth and you need to treat him rightly. As I hear this, I think that if someone rose back from the dead in front of me, I reckon I'd probably listen to them. I don't know if you're in a similar spot. You're like, someone coming back from the dead, it's a pretty big deal, right? I don't know. But Jesus here is saying, no. Someone rises from the dead, they still won't listen to them. In fact, Jesus did raise someone from the dead. He raised a number of people through the dead. Uh, One guy was was a kid in his coffin going to his grave. He's well and truly gone. Another guy was a guy who was in his tomb. And do you know what his name was? Lazarus. He rose Lazarus back from the dead. And do you know what the religious leaders did to Lazarus after that? They didn't listen to him. They killed him. They killed him. Jesus knows that signs and pop and wonder and miracles, they're they're not going to be the things that convince us. So if you're sitting here tonight going, if Jesus rocked up right now and spoke to me in the flesh and I saw him, touched him, then I'd believe him. It actually won't be enough. It's the word of God that convinces people. See, if someone came back from the dead, it could just be a freak of nature. Their heart could have had some abnormality. They could have been sleeping for a bit, a long time, you know, happens to Superman. must be true. It could happen. They come back from the dead and then we're like, wow, is that just a freak of nature? Does that mean that they are God the Son? No, it doesn't. But if people 700 years earlier said one would come from the line of David, if prophets writing then look forward to a king who would rule on the throne forever, that death would not beat him down, that he would come and be the one who was beaten for us in our place, that our iniquities would be laid on him. If that was said 700 years before, and then as this guy turned up on the scene, people said, this is him, the promised king that has been pointed forward to. It's him, Jesus. You'd watch with a bit of kind of, okay, could this be him? Could this not? Then he starts saying, you know, I'm going to die. And three days later, rise from the dead. And then he does. Well, it suddenly gives meaning to the miracle. It's the word of God that will convince us. Jesus' death was a death in our place. It wasn't just a freak accident. It was a death where he took on for us 
what we deserve. Death, judgment, hell. God poured out on him the anger that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and that God could remain just. The rich man knew what he had to do. He had the word of God. And it was there in Leviticus how he should have treated others, how he should have trusted God rather than his wealth. But he didn't. Your attitude to God is worked out by your attitude to the Bible. Your attitude to God is worked out by your attitude to the Bible. That means we don't have to wait for the next big miracle before you or your friend become a Christian. The Bible says that it will make you wise for salvation. It is God's interpretation of history. These events happen. No historian will claim that Jesus didn't live. He did live and he died and he rose again and he claims to be the king. How will you respond to what Jesus said and did? Because how you respond to him now determines whether or not his death in your place is applied to you. Do you trust him or do you trust yourself? So how do we respond then to the reality of what is to come after life? Life then what? Life now what? Well, there's a great preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones and he has this, I think, helpful illustration where basically he says this, imagine a friend comes to see you and uh, the friend says, hey, look, I was at your house the other day and someone came around to the door and they had a bill. You weren't there, so I paid the bill for you. Lloyd-Jones says, well, how would you respond to that friend? The answer is, well, we've got no idea unless we know how big the bill was. See, if the guy, when he came to the door, just the bill was a postage stamp, you're like, man, you know, what is it now? A dollar, a Kiwi stamp. Sweet. And what would you say to someone that gave a Kiwi stamp? You know, you'd be like, oh, thanks. I really appreciate you doing that, you know. But imagine it was the IRD that came to your door. And they're going, you know those last 10 years of taxes that you haven't paid? Now. And imagine that friend went, oh, well, you're not here. I'll just pay the last 10 years worth of taxes. That's very different, isn't it? You'd respond to that person very differently. Until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall on the ground and kiss his feet. What did Jesus actually experience at the cross? See, unless you believe in hell, you'll never know how much he loved you. For he went to hell and back on the cross for us. You'll never know how much he values you. You'll never know unless you believe in hell. On that cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that he didn't know what was going on. It's that he did. And he was quoting a psalm, Psalm 23. And he's saying at this moment, God's anger is being poured out on me for everything that you and I and every other person in the world has done. He took it on himself. He went to hell and back for us. People try to make God look more loving by getting rid of the idea of judgment and hell. But ironically, they make him look less loving because it means he didn't go to hell for us. This passage is a warning for all of us. Do not judge your future by your current circumstances. The rich man's circumstances were completely reversed. Life was sweet, but he ignored the creator. Lazarus's were completely reversed as well. Life might suck for you right now, but the future doesn't have to. Past death's door, when everything is put right, when there's no more mourning or crying or pain, if you trust that Jesus has paid the price for you, if you call out to him for help, then you'll have his mercy. See, after death meets us all, there will only be two lines. One going to eternal destruction and torment, and the other to life forever with God and his people. And the only thing that determines which line you are in then is how you respond to God's word about his son now. Jesus has offered you and me his very life, his death for mine. Do you really think we don't need it? If that is the future, do we think we can ignore it? Come and trust the one who loves you so much that he went to hell and back on the cross for you. Put your life, your security, your priorities in in Jesus' hands. And if that's you today, if you're like, I want in, then why don't you cry out to God and ask Jesus to forgive you 
and to trust Him to fly the flag in your life, to be the one that you live for, not in order to be saved, but because He's already done it for you. In a minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that, uh, to pray and ask God, basically say sorry for uh, what I've done. Thank you for dying on the cross. Please help me to live for you. But before we get there, I just want to spend some time now just with questions. Uh, So hopefully you've sent them in. Uh, Let's go from where we're at and uh, we'll answer some questions. All right. People doing okay? Yep. All right. Let's have some great stuff. What evidence is there to really know the Bible is an accurate and credible account of history? And why do we not add more books to the Bible if God still speaks to us? Okay. Um, The evidence that we know the Bible is accurate and credible account of history is huge. Uh, As you go and look at both external sources, so you look at non-Christian sources and what they say about Jesus, they pretty much say that he he, um, was a miracle worker or people claimed he was a miracle worker. Uh, that he died on a Roman cross, uh, he was crucified for claiming to be God the Son, that people treated him and worshipped him as a God. There's even graffiti in the first century by a guy named Alexemenos. Uh, oh, sorry, it's not by him, it's about him. And it's a picture of a donkey on a cross, and the graffiti says, Alexemenos worships his God. In other words, it's saying, you idiot, you're worshipping the God who died. Who would worship a God who would die on a cross? You're getting graffiti against this, when this is what they believe. So you're seeing that people actually believe right there and then, in in the very generation that it happened, that He was God the Son. It's very easy to believe things 100, 200, 700 years later. But here, Christianity took off in the very generation when people could verify what went on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there are many people still alive today who saw Jesus die and rise again and saw the miracles that He did and trusted that they were coming in Um, line with the word of God that was written about him. You can go and ask them. So at the time that the Bible was written, the Bible actually says, go ask, go ask people. They're alive now. Go and see what they think. It kind of draws a line in the sand to say, go and check this stuff out. Uh, And then you can kind of, um, the other thing that I say is show me another reason why Christianity spread so quickly when they could have just found his body, when they could have said, no, that didn't happen. if, If I started a, you know, a theory that said, you know, Adolf Hitler never existed. There was no Holocaust. Didn't happen. It's not real. Problem is, there are still people alive today who have been there. They can take you to the graves and say, see, this is where it happened. Uh, and that, that was about 70 years. We have copies of the New Testament from, that are 70 to 90 years old. So past that, that date. We can actually show you parts of that. Uh, so I want to say there's lots of evidence. Come along to Explaining Christianity. That's uh, a course that we have that helps people to understand what Christianity is about and ask more questions there, see some of this evidence. We'll talk through that. Why don't we add books of the Bible? Because um, Hebrews 1 says that in the past, God spoke in many ways through the prophets at various times, but now he has spoken to us through his son. God's final word is in Jesus. Jesus is God to us. Jesus spoke. Jesus sent out those that he, he brought with him uh, in Matthew 28 and said, go and make disciples of all nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Jesus sent out his apostles to tell us about what he taught. And that's exactly what they did. And so we believe in the things that Jesus has said as recorded by the apostles. Uh, and that's what the Bible is. The reason we don't add to it is because, well, Jesus still speaks, yes, but he speaks through the Bible to us. By God's Spirit, we, we, we hear about Him. God's Word to us is God to us. And when the Son has come in Jesus, we don't need anything greater. You can't have any other word from God that's more powerful than God Himself in the flesh. So that's why we don't add books of the Bible. Next question. That was two, P.S. Thanks. Uh, who made hell? Is it run by uh, God or the devil? Uh, great question. God made hell. Uh, he has set it up for the devil and his demons. Uh, and is it run by God or devil? It's run by God. Uh, God is enacting and holding them in judgment in the place that those who reject Him deserve to be for life. Next question. If Hades is hell's waiting room, is there also a waiting room for heaven? How is this similar or different to the idea of purgatory? Great question. Um, Some would say that the thief on the cross in Luke, when he's at Jesus' side, he he trusts in Jesus. Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's some sense that for the thief on the cross, when he trusts in Jesus, he is with Jesus in paradise. 
But we read throughout the rest of the New Testament that, that, that God is not just making this paradise, He's making a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, a new sky, a new land. The earth will be remade. And the end picture is God, um, Jesus coming down with His people and living in a world with no crying or mourning and pain, a physical world. Not like those kind of ads with the angels flapping around and the kind of clouds. Real, physical. Um, and so is there somewhere where if we die now, do we go to be with God, I think yes, in some ways. Uh, the New Testament does point you in that direction. What that looks like, they're all signs, they're all symbols, they're all ideas. Um, but they're not a reality on that. But I think there is a sense in which the new heaven and new earth is when everything is fully um, done and clear. How is that similar or different to the idea of purgatory? Purgatory says there's a waiting room where you go to do your time. And once you've done your time, you can pay off all the wrongs that you've done and you can cross over from one room to the other. Jesus is very clear. There's a great chasm fixed between these two rooms and no one can cross over forward or back. Your destiny is set at the point of death. There are no second chances. Next question. As implied here, if people in torment can talk or communicate with those in paradise, how can that be paradise? Yeah, great question. Will we be able to see those um, who are in hell or Hades? Again, I think it's talking about these waiting rooms. It's not the new heaven and the new earth. Um, secondly, the question assumes that we think that hell and someone being in it is wrong. This is going to push you a little bit, but there's a sense in which if someone does an atrocity, they need to be placed in prison. There's a right penalty where we're actually like, this is right. I wish they never did in the first place, but where they are now is right. For those who reject God, and I should be in hell. Uh, it is right for people to be there. And so at that point, I think we'll be able to stand back and go, well, God in his goodness has actually enabled justice and has delivered that. The Old Testament, that the writers talk about his justice as a good thing. But because we can't handle the idea of punishment, because our world has kind of pushed that on us and every, everything's relative, uh, we can't handle the idea that someone's being punished. Um, there will be a sense in which that is right and good. Secondly, the New Testament tells us, uh, Revelation 21, check it up later, verses 1 to 4, um, there is now no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have been done away with. So I take it at that moment, we'll see the world as God sees it rightly and see how his justice has been good and that he is a good God. And we'll stand back and go, oh, that makes sense because there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. Next question. Uh, what's your opinion of anni- annihilationism? Annihilationism is the view that when we die, we just go off into nothingness. Um, uh, some people throughout the Christian church have been open to a possibility that that's the case. Um, it, it's been the, the idea that God is loving. How could he put someone in hell for forever? That's driven that kind of opinion. I think biblically, as we keep looking at what Jesus says, it's the reality that there is a hell and it does exist and that penalty goes on forever. Uh, and so um, I think annihilationism is wrong, that, that we don't just go off into nothingness. This, this passage itself would push you to say, no, 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 it's fixed. <laughs> and that the time that we have to, to respond to God rightly is now. Okay, uh, next question. I said, punishment is to correct wrongdoing. Did I? Okay. Um, will people in hell ever realize they've wronged God? If yes, why don't they get a chance to correct their wrong or accept Jesus? Um, if uh, I've obviously said uh, punishment is to correct wrongdoing, uh, definitely with children, we're at that point of trying to work that out with them to help them work out wrongdoing so they can live rightly. Uh, it's interesting, the New Testament talks about that God uses all sorts of sufferings to grow us and refine us to be more like Jesus. So he, he in a sense, punishes now in a limited way to help us work out what is right and what isn't. And you see that in that we suffer the consequences of our own stupid actions. God made the world, so if we stick our thumb in the fire, it hurts, right? Pull it out. That's the idea. I made it so you've got pain receptors. That's that's how I've made you. Now, if you do dumb things with your body, you sleep around, you recognize that that is not the way God made us. It actually hurts. When when we've had sex with someone for a while, then we stop. And there's a relationship that's bonded there. Keep seeing that the way God set the world up is right. And there is just natural kind of penalties or, or, or things that we learn from that. But God is saying that the time that we have to learn these is life. After that, no more option. There is a great chasm and you cannot cross over. So the time that we have to respond to God now, he's given us his word, he's sent his son. You're here tonight, you're hearing it. And he can't say, you never told me. He's telling you now. Um, the time we have is now. 
And that God has said, that is enough. He doesn't even need to give us this time. If he was going to be just, he could be completely just and go, you sinned the moment you rejected me or thought that you were the center of the world rather than me, bang, gone hell. That would be totally just. He's been phenomenally generous, giving us any time at all. So don't misuse it. (laughs) Take that time now. Trust him. Investigate what he has to say. Next question. Look at this. There's a lot. This is the last one. Is that right? Yes. Good. How do we know that the Jewish heaven and hell that Jesus speaks about are the real, uh, are real versus nirvana or other afterlifes? Okay. How do we know that the Jewish heaven and hell that Jesus speaks about are real versus nirvana or other afterlifes? Great question. There are lots of other different worldviews around us that would say that there are different afterlifes. And I think just because someone says it doesn't mean that it's true. And what we need to do is work out whether what they're saying is true. What is their authority to do this? And so uh, you look at, say, Buddhism with nirvana. The idea is that you reach the stage, um, many of you will know this better than me, but you reach a stage where nothing can affect you. But the afterlife is this state of nirvana when you get there that nothing positive nor negative can affect you. And that comes from the teachings of Buddha. Now, as you look at his teachings, that kind of doesn't make sense of the life that we live in. Like, it's saying that nirvana, the perfect state, is where nothing can affect you. You are just unchanged. I like relationships. We're kind of built to be changed by one another. Right? There's something about us. And this is saying that the future is, is not that. And now, if that was true, though, then you have to believe it. How do we know whether it's true or not? Well, I want to say, come back to the claims of Jesus. Why, why do we take Jesus' claims as true? Number one, he's a guy who actually lived. He's not just some idea about, oh, there's an idea of living. There is a guy who lived historically. Secondly, he claims to be God. It's testable. How, how do you test if someone's God or not? Well, firstly, if they tell the wind and the waves to stop and they do, then you're like, okay, that's, that's a pretty cool trick. Like, I, I don't know many people that can do that. If they say to a friend who, who, is, who is paralyzed, get up and walk, and they do, you're like, all right, now I'm going to start listening to some of the stuff you said. And then they do it in the context of things being spoken of them for over 700 years. Pointed forward to what this man would do. He'd heal the sick. He'd give sight to the blind. All these things were spoken of about what he would do. Is it the miracles that wow us? No, it's the context that they come in. And if Jesus is doing this within his context and he's fulfilling these things that have been said and then he says he will die and three days later he'll rise again and he does, who else do you know that beats death? And then he says, I'm the only way to God. Now, you're free to say, look, I think you're a fruit loop. You could be. Uh, but show me a better worldview. Show me something that makes more sense of the world that we live in than what he says. As you listen to the claims of Jesus, you say they make far more sense. Uh, Islam, just to pick one. Islam will say that our afterlife is dependent on me, uh, on God weighing up the good deeds I do and the bad deeds I do. And if I've done more good than bad, I'm in, sweet, sorted, but there's no assurance. Problem is, that's not just. What about all the bad things that I've done? Who, who pays for those? Someone's got to pay, right? Imagine I'm a doctor, okay? And, and I've, I've saved hundreds of lives. I've saved thousands of lives. I've been a good doctor. And then one day I come home and I'm really angry with something that's going on. There's, there's um, I don't know, my wife's sleeping with someone and I get so angry at him, I pull out a gun and shoot him. It's an angry night tonight. There we go. Uh, now, that's wrong. I, I get taken before a court. The judge says, have you done this thing wrong? You're like, yes, I've done one thing wrong. But in my defense, I've saved over a thousand lives. Like a thousand verse one. What should happen to me? I should go to jail because justice must be paid. What do we do with these things that lie? You know, there's no justice. God can't be just, I oh, will sweep them under the carpet. If you've got 51%, you're in. He's like... <laughs> Or if there's 100 people, right, and, and you, you, you save more than half of them, you're great. No, God is just. God is just. And as we, as we come to him and we view the other views of the afterlife, other views of the world, Christianity pushes us to say, this isn't just some person's idea in the ether. This is actually a man who's lived and his walk matches his talk. And we actually see accounts firsthand uh, from who he is and what he's done. And then we actually need to go, well, am I going to trust this or not? Does this make the most sense of what I see? Tonight, if you have heard something that you like, or let me phrase it a different way. If tonight 
you've been confronted with the reality that hell exists and Jesus is the only ticket to bypass that. Now, I want to say, actually make the choice and commitment tonight to trust Jesus. Don't walk away going, ah, oh, you know, if you're not convinced, then don't do it. I don't want to force anyone or say, you know, come join Jesus, we'll give you a free home in Fiji or something. I don't know. Holiday house, you can come. Timeshare. No. Spend the time to look at the evidence, come along to explain Christianity and work it out. But if you're like, man, I'm in. I've been mucking around for too long on the edges. Then actually do something about it tonight. And the way you do that is to ask God, God, uh, please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. Sorry for rejecting you. Please help me to trust Jesus, that his death was sufficient, that he's paid the, paid the price. And because of what Jesus did, I am forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then live the rest of your days trying to put him as your king, living with him, flying the, the flag of Jesus, not the flag of Rowan or whatever your name is. <laughs> that's what it means to be a Christian. So why don't I pray now? And if that's you, then why don't you pray just in the quietness of your own mind to God. Go from here. Father God, we are so, so thankful that you don't treat us right now as we deserve. Sorry for turning our backs on you. Sorry for not treating you as you do deserve. Thank you that Jesus came and lived and died in our place and faced the penalty that we deserve so that we could be in right relationship with you. Please forgive us and help us to live with Jesus as the King and ruler of our life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.